this weekend. Lastly, I'm going to get out of the way. We have a guest preacher today. My buddy Evan Skelton is going to come bring the word for us today. If you don't know Evan, you should. Uh, They're a friend of our church, Evan and his wife Grace. They uh, are at Bayless Baptist in South County slash city. It's close enough to call it South City, right? Close enough. You Close want it. Enough. You want it to be a city church and not a county church. That's fine. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, I'm going to let him tell you about the amazing work God is doing at Bayless because it is exciting, and we have gotten the privilege of getting to be in this journey with their family, with their church. We've gotten to do a couple work projects on there on site at their building, and just get to partner with them regularly in prayer. Um, we are blessed to have Evan serving us today and bringing us the word and reminding us of the beauty and power of the gospel. So please. Say hi to him and his wife before they leave today. Thank them for spending their afternoon with us. I'm going to pray for Evan. Just pray God's anointing over him. Um, And as I do that, I'm also going to take a minute before I pray for him and just pray for those uh, in in, in our church and the families in our church who have uh, service people who who, who are dealing with the weightiness of this holiday. So Evan, come on up. We'll pray together and I'll let you get to it. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your church. Thank you for the gift of family, for the gift of of getting to be together in community. God, we want to specifically today pray for those in our community, in our church, who, who have connections to the armed forces, who have served, who are veterans, who have lost loved ones and friends in that service. God, we pray your grace, your presence with them this weekend. And we pray that they would feel the love of your church as individuals and friends and family reach out to them and honor them and connect with them, God. That and the work of replanting and revitalization that I'm passionate about um, at some other time. But today I want us to hear something more important and I want to hear from God's word in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25. Do I need to take this out of my shirt? Is that going to be an issue? Okay, cool. Just making sure. Making sure it's not something I'm, I'm doing because it, it's very possible. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 we do something in, um, in my church, and I would ask if you would do this with me. You don't have to if you're, not, if you're not comfortable, but if you would stand for the reading of God's word, I don't know if that's part of your liturgy, but Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And the reason that we do that is just these words are the best words. These are the words that we need. And so um, if you would, starting in verse 19, I'm going to read, and you can follow along. Uh, you can go on a, your phone, download a version app if you need that as well. I'll be reading from ESV, the English Standard Version. Therefore, brothers... We could also say, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may may be seated. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been reflecting quite a bit on the idea of hope recently. I think... um, it makes sense, I think, for many of us to be thinking about it, especially with how much hopelessness has settled on many of our lives, like a cold, gray fog. I, 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 not to get too vulnerable before we get 
No one can enjoy it. I promise not to take my shirt off with you guys. If I can take this. There we go. All right, that might have been worth the price of admission, just that. So. Let's see if I can get this. Okay, is that better? Let's try it now. So it could be, here's some of the reasons. You know, it could be just the exclusive claims of Christianity, or it could be it's sexual ethics, or simply because you've seen professing Christians do and say very ugly things. But we're in a day and age in which doubt, not faith, seems to be the norm, in which even the strongest Christians need to reconvince themselves of the truths of the gospel almost on a daily basis. I need to tell you, this may seem like a new phenomenon for many of us, but it is not a new phenomenon for Christianity. It seems, in fact, that deconversion was a sustained and heartbreaking challenge for the first Christians as well, including those who are reading the very letter that we just read from and we're going to look at today. Today, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 in two parts, if we can, looking eventually at what my sermon is titled, The Hope That Binds. But before I consider the hope that binds, I want to consider when hope declines. I'm a Baptist pastor, I guess it has to rhyme. But number one, when hope declines. In the, at the end of 2020, Rhett and Link, the duo behind the YouTube channel, Good Mythical Morning and the podcast Ear Biscuits were the fourth highest earners on YouTube. YouTube, sorry, on YouTube. Sorry, wow. On YouTube, making nearly $20 million a year. Their Nerf Wars and rap battles were a staple in the homes of many children and young adults. And the comedy duo had even been featured on the Today Show, Live with Kelly, and the Tonight Show. But they were perhaps most famous for their influence as public Christians, at least until early last year. They were public Christians, in fact, who were conversant in apologetics and theology. And then in February of 2020, Rhett and Link both released video announcements of what they called their spiritual deconstruction, in which they traced their journey from crew staffers to missionaries, to now public unbelievers. Many celebrated the original announcement not only as vulnerable, but as inspirational, putting language to their own uh, journey of deconversion. Well, still others saw that story and found their faith shaken, haunted by a question that Rhett asked in his own story, which he posed in his own original video. As he put it, if I don't have to believe Christianity then why would I? If I don't have to believe it, then why would I? In a day which Christianity, Christian faith seems increasingly implausible to many, Rhett's question is haunting for many. But it seems that the audience of Hebrews wrestled with this question as well, and for some of the same reasons. You see, at the point in which this letter was written, many of the men and women to whom this letter was written were thinking very seriously of reverting back to their Jewish heritage, of deconverting from Christianity, or at least just being a little less public about the whole thing. In fact, becoming a Christian didn't just represent a private, personal decision. It proved very quickly to have tremendous public costs, especially over time. It put Christians 
outside the government protections that were offered Judaism. It was not one of the uh, so-called religio licitas, which means the government protected or legislated religions. Christianity didn't have those same protections. It also put them outside of their own communities, friends and family who heard that their family member had converted to Christianity would have grieved the decision, pled with them to return, saw them as bringing shame upon their entire community. Becoming a Christian came with enormous public costs. It's likely that these early Christians were not only mocked for their faith, some of them would have lost jobs, would have lost homes, some would have lost spouses, putting their safety at risk from random acts of violence from the government, even even government-sanctioned persecution under the guise of keeping the peace. As the costs started to add up, some weren't quite sure why they were still putting up with it all. They had hoped being public about their Christianity would make their faith compelling to others, but in reality, it had made them seem strange shameful, and even a dangerous influence on others. You can probably imagine their disappointment at all that they had gained from their new faith, wondering what they saw in Christianity to begin with the longer they went on. Perhaps they would wonder to themselves, like many do, maybe I just, maybe I could be less public about this. What if I just, what if I just kind of drifted away, took a break from these things? Maybe I didn't need to make a big stink Maybe they could continue to cherish Jesus in private. Maybe then the centurion who would, would lay off. Maybe they could even be welcomed home for Sabbath. Is it any wonder we hear some among them had drifted away, according to our passage, from showing up for worship? Perhaps wondering, like Rhett, if they really should believe in Christianity if they didn't have to. Perhaps we can understand more than ever why so many were distressed and drifting full of doubt. The author of Hebrews sees the danger in all of this, but it's interesting. He doesn't dismiss the real tensions they are facing or shout down those who are doubting. He also doesn't make any triumphalistic claims or foolish guarantees. He doesn't tell them, friends, just hold on, the sun will come out tomorrow. Instead, he offers them once more something more important and precious, a clear vision of the risen Christ, of Christ himself, of the one who their faith is all about and reminds them of all that Christians have gained in him. Well, what exactly? Summarizing the argument that the author of Hebrews has now been building for six chapters, he claims that the voluntary sacrificial death of Jesus, and I loved in that rock of ages, right? You know, one takes your life, right? You give it away. The voluntary sacrificial death of Jesus has given them far more than an inspiring example to follow or a reason to sleep soundly at night. Rather, Jesus's death has granted the very thing that human beings need most, the very thing that we have grown to the separation of since the very first human beings lost it for us, and that is access to God himself. 
I remember what it was like uh, when I was a kid to follow my dad into work. He worked um, in computers. Don't ask me what he did. I obviously don't work with computers, but regardless, I remember uh, one time where uh, as a kid, he, would, he needed to go check the computer servers. I don't even know if that's the right term. Uh, at work and taking me with him, he would lead me nonetheless up to the front doorways and uh, he would take out a badge. Okay, so he had this little red keypad and then you take out a badge and beep, get it. Uh, it was green and we were granted access through that door and then another door, and then another door. And the further in we went, the more I realized how a kid like me shouldn't be going here normally on his own. We eventually ended up in the very heart of the company as the computer servers were whirring around us. And there I am with my dad, realizing that the only reason I am here is because of my dad. And in fact, if I had wandered here in my own, I would have been in some pretty deep trouble. But I didn't have to fear because my father's presence, my dad's presence had given me that very access. It was hard not to feel a sense of awe and importance even as a young kid. But this is only a small picture of the access hinted at here. Pictured in the terms of a very particular room in the temple, a place called the Holy of Holies, a giant cube of a room where because of the new and living way That Jesus has opened, it says, through the curtain. It's new in the sense that it didn't exist before it was opened up. It's new, but also in a sense that it won't ever expire like the abandoned cups of milk in my... Not guaranteed by the strength of your faith, but the strength of the one your faith is in. Let me say that again. Your access to God is not guaranteed by the strength of your own faith, but by the strength of the one that your faith is in. Which means, if you have taken Christ in faith, you never need to fear God stiff-arming you, cold-shouldering you, finally tiring of you, or waiting for you to prove him wrong. So long as Christ, your high priest, is deserving, a new and living way has been opened to you, and like the David, Job, You even think more modern examples, Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis. These example after example of those who clung hard to Christ, they bound themselves to him and yet still struggled with their own doubt. They faced something that left them disoriented, questioning again the very truths that they had taken for granted. In other words, we need to ready ourselves and those that we love for the possibility of a fall. And beginning in verse 22, I think we find three anchors that will arrest that fall. Three anchors in the form of commands that are not only motivated by hope, but anchor us to hope when our grip slips. Start with the first. Anchor number one, bind yourself to God. Did you read verse 22 with me? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author tells us, first, in light of all that he has to say about Jesus, to draw near. To whom? God, it would seem. 
But then why does he have to say this after arguing the way to God has been open to Christians through Christ in a way that won't ever be closed? Why is it that he needs to tell them then, then to draw near if that way is already open? Well, because I think he knows how we are. I think he knows that we don't always take advantage of this access regardless of its reality. We might get all this in principle, but can I ask you, what does your life reveal? What do you do in times of stress and insecurity? We are a culture that prizes independence and self-reliance. And I fear when push comes to shove, we are more prone in times of stress and anxiety, in times of insecurity, in times of loss, to work harder or to distract ourselves with yet another TV show or to cope in many more secret and destructive ways than we are to draw near to him. I remember years ago, a friend of mine facing what was one of the most difficult seasons in his life. His marriage was on the brink of divorce. His faith was falling apart and he was retreating from everyone around him. Well, we were eventually able to connect and checking in on how he was doing, the topic soon switched to his spiritual life. And I asked him, what is your, what's God teaching you in a time like this? What comfort are you finding from the scripture? I'm curious. He answered honestly, you know, Evan, I'm just needing a break from the Bible right now. At one level, I could understand it. I mean, He had just been through a terrible few months and he had struggled to find encouragement in the scripture even prior to when his life fell apart. But still, I I told my friend, as much as I, I did not know what it was like to be in his position, I was confident that the thing he needed wasn't less of God's voice. After all, how many times have you been told in a dating relationship, theoretically, I think we need to take a break right now Sometimes it gave you the reset that you needed in your relationship, but more often taking a break just means an easier breakup. Now, it doesn't mean you should plaster a smile on your face, stuff your confusion, and fake some sense of stability if that's not what you have. After all, verse 22 tells us to draw near with a true heart, meaning a sincere and genuine one. But one of the most powerful and necessary ways we draw near to God with a true heart is in the midst of our confusion and pain. In fact, you want to see raw and authentic expressions of, con- of confusion and pain, even sometimes uncomfortable expressions of confusion and pain. Read the book of Psalms. What do the psalmists do in the midst of their doubt? They draw near to God, addressing, addressing their complaint not to their blog or Insta story or the friend they can always rant to. They articulate their complaint to God himself in light of what he has said in his word as if it was the only way to keep their faith alive. Another point, another pastor points out that the authentic, that authentic biblical faith is not actually blind faith. It isn't merely a holy hoping for the best or a mindless stab in the dark, a leap into apparent nothingness, he says. Rather, he points out that faith is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and his promises. Again, someone here is surely looking at that phrase, full assurance, wondering, wow, I'm I'm definitely not there. I mean, I might have 
some assurance, maybe like a quarter tank of assurance, but it certainly isn't full assurance. But when the author mentions full assurance, just like confidence, he's not talking about a subjective sense that you won't ever wonder in some corner of your mind if this might be true. Just as without wavering in verse 23 doesn't mean you will never struggle to believe. After all, the evil conscience referred to here can mean something like a burdened conscience, a guilty and tormented conscience. Despite the objective reality that our hearts have been sprinkled clean, our bodies washed, our entire cells, if you will, washed new, made new by the blood of Christ, despite that reality, those consciences of those same people who have been cleansed and sanctified, washed and made spotless and pure, who have been given access, people like myself, my conscience, maybe like yours, is still subjectively waking up to that reality. It's the very reason that the author of Hebrews needs to remind them to draw near. No, full assurance doesn't mean that you will never struggle to believe. In fact, it means that in the midst of your doubt, you struggle, you work, you investigate, that in the midst of doubt, you might work to doubt even your own doubts. Even as you look for reasons for your faith, maybe look for the reasons behind even your doubt that you have left unseen. Again, a true heart in a full assurance of faith is one that gives reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought to God and his promises more than they give thought to their own circumstances and doubt. And I would add on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, practicing dependence in prayer and study of God's word, even when it's the hardest thing to do. And of course, it's the hardest thing to do. Of course, it's the hardest thing to show up in a place like this when you're in that kind of place. But sometimes it's the only thing that keeps our faith alive. Of course, sometimes we need change in our study and prayer life, just like a couple struggling in their sex life needs to get more intentional and creative. But the one thing we don't need is a break from the very thing that fuels our subjective assurance of what is an objective reality. It is this daily dependence which leads us to cry out with the author, God is faithful, even in the midst of doubt. Not as some spiritual blindfold, but because we are putting in the work to believe it in the midst of doubt. Like a sailor, sailor, furiously trying to maintain his balance in the storm, tying tying himself to the mast if necessary, we are reminding ourselves of what is true and of the news that proves that it is true, the gospel itself. That is our mast, which leads us to our second anchor. Number two, bind yourself to the gospel. Have you ever seen the movie Twister? Just came out on HBO Max, in case you're interested. The epic disaster movie about tornado chasers. And it's pretty realistic for the time. In fact, my mom would get so motion sick from the movie that she had to run out of the theater with my dad. It's like one of the best stories in our house. We ask him, tell it again, and she hates talking about it. But at the climax of the movie, a main cu- the main couple faces the threat of a coming F5 tornado, forcing them to seek refuge at a water pump facility. At, at one point, one of the actors suggests that their only chance of survival is by strapping themselves to the water pipes, pipes that went 30 feet underground, uh, which they do, 
And sure enough, even as the tornado flattens the building around them, they miraculously survive. And some of you who are science majors will say, yep, that sure is miraculous. Regardless, it's a really cool movie. Some of these students, again, will, again, critique maybe the scientific inaccuracy, but I think that there's moments here, I mean, the mo- that in our spiritual life that that we're seeing something uh, of, a, of the principle. When we face out storms of our own and when they come upon us, we need something to strap ourselves to as well. Something that won't give way under the pressure, an anchor, if you will. And for Christians, the only thing that can take the force of the whipping winds is what the author calls the confession of our hope. What is this confession of hope? What well, isn't so much the act of hoping, like crossing your fingers and hoping for the best, but what Christians confess our hope is in, the gospel itself. I'll tell you why I find this so practically significant. When it comes to a variety of deconversion stories that we hear, what many are leaving Christian faith over turns out to be not so much over the gospel as it ends up being about the actions of religious people or the cultural trappings our Christianity has taken on or some of its secondary claims about morality. Now, don't hear me say when I say secondary as in unimportant. I certainly don't mean anything of the sort. We can't, we, as if we could somehow separate holiness from the gospel. However, we need to say with crystal clarity, the essence of Christianity isn't its political claims or worship styles or even its sexual restrictions as, e- as clear as the Bible will be. As much as these matter, at the center of Christianity is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are struggling whether you're struggling with the Bible's claims about sex or identity or the ugly things that you have experienced, even as I recommend that you work out these questions with a Christian you trust, someone who is, who is rooted, bound themselves to this faith, who will listen well, who will seek understanding and clarify why the Bible says what it says, even more so, wrestle with the gospel. Wrestle with who Jesus claims to be and what he claims to do. Wrestle with what he means when he says that dying to yourself is the way to life. Wrestle with the offer of life that he makes. Wrestle with the gospel. Friends, if you are trying to hold on to anything, first take hold of him in faith and repentance and then begin to explore the implications of having him as your king. It is only then that you will begin to find the cost endurable. Take Jesus and the rest of it will begin to work itself right. After all, God is so patient with us. He is not lacking in an ounce of patience. He is a God who calls himself a God of steadfast love and we can be patient with one another. Christians, let me ask you, whether your loved ones are struggling, what it is you have to offer them? Is it a harsh and condemning spirit? Are you fearful and reactive trying to protect some ideal picture you had for their future or how your family would look? Or do you offer them the meekness and lowliness of Christ, a patience to take some hits, to hear some uncomfortable things? And do you offer them the gospel once again? Not some trite script or dismissive comforts, but the person and work of Jesus as the hope that they and you most need. The gospel is the reason for our hope, This could produce full assurance and unwavering faith. The assurance that even when I am faithless, he is faithful. 
Last and certainly not least, in fact, in the days we are in, this is perhaps the most controversial anchor of all. Number three, bind yourself to a local church. Again, the author of Hebrews not only assumes people will drift from their hope in Christ, he is seeing it take place among the people that he loves. How specifically? It is not like he went around with a clipboard asking how many times they had their devotions or kept a log of how many inspirational quotes that they were posting to Instagram. No, the clearest sign of their drift seems to be that they stopped showing up for gathered worship. I realize this might sound legalistic to some of us. You mean he was tracking their church attendance? Well, yes, it might seem. Not showing up to church, um, I should say, it's not that showing up to church. Let me say that differently. Not, it differently. It's not that showing up to church guarantees an authentic relationship with God. I'm in a church where people have been there Sunday after Sunday for years, and some of them are still not believers. But the author understands that a drift from gathering with God's people often indicates a drift from God himself. And it's even more important than that, though. A drift from church doesn't just indicate a drift from hope. Rather, showing up to church is one of the things that anchors us to hope. Now, I need to say that church is not an event. It is a people, of course. I know some are going to critique me afterwards. But that people is made to gather. They're made to be together, to worship together, to do this, to gather under his word together. Why, again... I wish I could spend all afternoon on this verse, but notice the language in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What this is saying is that the individual Christian is not just to give intentional, deliberate thought to God's word, particularly to the gospel. It is not saying we should simply give thought to our own faith. Rather, Every Christian is to give intentional, deliberate consideration to the faith of others, to strategically consider how I can stir up my fellow Christian. How can I help them come along? How can I awaken, protect, and encourage someone else's faith besides my own? In fact, you want to find your, you want to cling to faith yourself? Help somebody else do it beside you. In other words, the author assumes that being a Christian, a Christian will take responsibility not only for their faith, but again, for the faith of others. I realize this is strange for some of us who have equated the strength of their, of their Christian faith to the length of their quiet times. For those of us who think our, of our relationship with God as purely a private or personal thing, after, I, after all, private and personal relationship with God is supremely biblical. However, the Bible assumes that a relationship with God can't actually thrive when it remains private and personal. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul doesn't simply say, pray for the idle. Get the faint-hearted in counseling, as much as I love counseling, or make sure you're not one of those weak. No, he assumes one of the basic marks of a Christian is the responsibility they take for another's spiritual growth. And when I see Another struggle and drift, it's not just unfortunate, it's on me to do whatever I can to help. And more often than not, it will take strategic consideration about what is best and what is most needed and when to speak. Sometimes realizing you didn't end up saying or doing what was best, sometimes you just stuck your foot way in your mouth. But one of the things that love does is risk, even as this might sound intimidating. Can you imagine what a community like this would look like? Perhaps this community already does look like it. A community that doesn't 
shame doubters or silence sufferers or avoid skeptics, but approached them with empathy and patience, a community that risked uncomfortable conversations for another's good, which sacrificed itself, devoted itself for the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. Can you see how a community like that would be an anchor in itself? I think we're seeing the need for this kind of community more than ever before. It's one of the reasons I think that digital church simply can't replace it. Even if I do like being in my PJs with a cup of coffee. It may be more convenient, again, but the only weekly communion with other Christians who have bound themselves to Christ and to one another will help you draw near or hold fast when it matters. In a time when many of us are struggling for, fo- for hope, is it possible that our hope and the gathering are more interlinked than we ever thought that they were? Is it possible that God really was wise, not in just saving us, but saving us into a family where we might hold on to hope together? A church of all places should be a place where safety and clarity and patience and comfort abound. In conclusion, I realize that many of us, it intimidates many of us to consider an age in which doubt is the norm. And many of us know what it's like to inhabit that space, to carry doubts of our own. But we can fully expect that God will work as he always has in times like these. He is as committed to his glory as he ever has been. He will build his church and he will build his church as his people bind themselves to these anchors. You want to hold on to hope, especially in times in which the costs are adding up and they're only going to cost the more especially when you find your own world upended. Bind yourself to God, bind yourself to the gospel, and bind yourself to his people. And take responsibility for helping one another to do this well. Father, you have given us rich gifts more than we ever have ever realized, including the access that we have to you, even now that you hear and you respond, and it's your, you are pleased to respond on behalf of your people And what a gift you've given us in the clarifying voice of the word of God to interrupt us, to sustain us, particularly as it centers on your son and it drives us into a community that would be set on fire in love by this same word. Would that become the truth of Bayless Baptist and of Red Tree that we might sustain the hope, hold fast to the confession for generations to come in a world that desperately needs the same hope that we have experienced. And it's for Christ's sake that we pray. Amen.